the Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast is a verse-by-verse study with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. These audio sessions were recorded over a three-year period during Shabbat services at Beit Hillel, located in Tacoma, Washington. All right, we're starting on page 60. For Again, for those of you that, um, that maybe didn't get the former lessons, they are available uh, at TorahResource.com. You can go to the Matthew link and download them. And uh, hopefully when you do, you'll get the ones that are cleaned up a little bit in terms of typos and that kind of thing. So there's even an advantage to that. I mean, you can always you can download them even if you get, get them here if you want, uh, because sometimes there might be some last-minute changes I make before I put them up on the website as well, but not very many, at least not this time. Um, next time through, I'm sure there will be additional edits. We're starting at chapter 2, verse 12. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. So right off the bat, we remember that we're in this uh, section of Matthew that's talking about these magicians, these sorcerers, these uh, these uh, pagan worshipers who have come to find out about this king of Israel, uh, who he is, and to honor him. Now, you know, there was a lot, as you can imagine, from these, from, from the gospel stories, there grew uh, many additional legends and so forth in, in the apocryphal gospels and in some of the early church fathers. How many of you think that the, uh, that the Magi came to believe in Yeshua? It doesn't say, does it? And we never hear of them again. So who knows? Sure. So, so the point was, is being made that, well, but God communicated them uh, to them in a dream. They, they obeyed it in both cases. They, they found, okay. Yeah, I, I think God can give dreams to whomever to bring them around to do whatever, you know. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. Of course, you know that uh, in the early emerging Christian church, they made heroes out of the Magi, and, and there was all kinds of mythology as to um, what happened to them and how they started churches and became bishops and so forth and so on. I, I'm, I'm being a little facetious there, but I mean, um, there's, I'm sure somewhere in Israel there's some church built that says this is where the Magi originally, you know, put their feet. That's what I'm saying. I'm being, I'm being a little facetious. But Matthew certainly wants us to understand that they appear to have something, that they know something, and they're acting upon it. But one wonders if he isn't doing that also to put into contrast how Herod treats Yeshua and later how the Jewish authorities are going to treat Yeshua. Remember Yeshua himself, and I know we're getting way down the story, but, but remember when Yeshua himself, he comes and he says, Woe unto you, such and such a city, and woe unto you, such and such a city, if the, mirror, if the things that have been done in you had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. So what's the, what's the point in that? The point is, if if you are were, if you are less you are harder, shall we say, less responsive than Sodom and Gomorrah, who are you? And in a, in, a, in some ways, Matthew from the inside, he's not looking at it from the outside. He's part of the Jewish community. He's saying, here we are as a Jewish community, and these pagan sorcerers come and bow to this king. And what do we do? So who is better? Who is more on track? That I mean, there's a little bit of that going on here. Now, he, he could be, uh, he's labeled as anti-Semitic by some of the commentators and so forth, but what they forget is that, he, no, it's an inside, it's an intramural debate 
You know, you can say things inside the circle of your family that you would be very offended if somebody else from the outside said to you. You know, you can sit at the table and you say, Boy, I don't know, when's the last time you took a bath? You know, I think you better shower up tonight, you know. Uh, you can say that and get away with it because you're part of family. But if some visitor comes in and sits down and says that, you look at him like, wait a minute. So, I, I mean, I just use that as kind of a, uh, a comical illustration to say when Matthew speaks his hard words, he speaks it to, his, to the inside group. He's inside that group. He can chastise his Jewish brothers for their lack of, of understanding and their lack of uh, perception with regard to the Messiah. And at the same time, he can kind of give a subtle but not so subtle hand clap for all of these Gentiles who seem to get on track as soon as the Lord speaks to them. <laughs> right? I mean, so uh, there's a little bit of that going on too, I think, in the way that he tells the story. Right. Sure. Yeah, uh, let me repeat that. Uh, Simeon and uh, Anna, when they when they met Joseph, Mary, and bringing Yeshua in on the eighth day for circumcision, and they recognized Yeshua to be the Messiah, that, that could have been a bit more of a stir, but it's interesting that the Gospel writers don't seem to say that it is. Um, the Temple Mount was very, very large, you know, and you could get... You could be pretty private in, you know, in a small group, and others wouldn't know exactly what was going on. So, but you're right. I mean, it was it's recorded by the gospel writers. There were here were some more uh, these time this time Jewish people who God had opened their eyes to say, here he is. You know, were they calculating the years from Daniel? I don't know. Maybe so. There seemed to there seemed to be a a, a growing awakening of a messianic anticipation at the, at this time. You know, the apocalyptic literature and uh, the apocryphal literature that's being generated at this time and before even even a century before Enoch and others uh, were anticipating that this was the time when the when the uh, uh, e- when good would triumph over evil finally. And so, yeah, we, that's hotly debated in scholarly circles, but it's becoming more and more accepted because they keep finding texts that keep talking about these kinds of things, particularly in Qumran and other, in, in other kinds of texts. So, yeah, there, there was an anticipation. Um, is it possible? I think it certainly is possible, and, and, and I think it probably is the case, that God was in the process of stirring up the pot, so to speak. Because, you know, Paul tells us in Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son. So, I mean, there was this, there was this crescendo that was coming, and, and, you know, God plays timpani and other instruments pretty well, so he can build that crescendo and uh, stir it up and get people ready for, for the one that was coming. Yeah, question. Let me repeat that. The, the idea that, you know, Bethlehem is, you know, approximately five miles away from Jerusalem. Maybe a little more than that, but not much. And, um, and uh, so the, the news that came by way of the shepherds and so forth more than likely would have found its way to Jerusalem. Certainly the Sadducees and others would have been very interested to know of these kind of phenomena uh, as, as well as the Pharisees. The Essenes. Sure, sure. So, uh, again, the comment is that uh, when the Magi come, say, a year and a half later, it could have been that they said, well, it was nothing. You know, it was, you know, okay, no big events between the report of the shepherds and now. And then all of a sudden these guys come from the east saying, hey, we saw this star. 
And the ancients were very keen on stars, as, as we noted last week. So, you know, there was a comet that came over Jerusalem that they all said was indication that it was going to be destroyed. And sure enough, it was destroyed. And so, I mean, there, um, the, the, somebody's saying, we saw this star. What's, what does it mean? And uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that God is stirring the pot. And if how it, how it affected the Magi personally, I can't say. I don't know. It's another one of those pieces of the puzzle that he just hasn't given us. To, maybe it's not important. All right. So this emphasis of Matthew's that foreigners received divine revelation in concert with the appearance of God's Messiah is continued here. The Magi are specifically warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod with the information regarding the child. And once again, the foreigners are obedient to the divine revelation. They depart to their unknown country without unknown to us, not unknown to them, without traveling on the main roads, which would have most likely taken them through Jerusalem. So they find another way around. It could have been that it was a longer way around. The second section of uh, chapter 2 deals with the flight to Egypt by Joseph, Mary, and Yeshua in order to escape the persecution perpetrated by Herod. It divides neatly into three sections, each ending with a quote or allusion to a Tanakh reference. Uh, the first is section is verses 13 through 15, which is the warning in the dream and the flight to Egypt. And it ends with a quote from Hosea 11.1. 1. And the second section is verses 16 through 18, which describes the slaughter of the innocent ones and ends with a quote from Jeremiah 31.15. And the third section is are verses 19 through 23, the return to Israel and settling in Nazareth with an allusion perhaps to Isaiah 11.1, 1, though I've changed my mind on that since I wrote that page. So you'll see uh, it could well be an allusion to Isaiah 11.1, 1, but it may also have uh, other connections. Connections. All right. Now, I think we're all aware of the fact that Matthew is making every effort to show the parallel between his story and the Exodus story. The, the, the parallels are too obvious. I've given them to some of them here in a chart. It would be an interesting uh, project, homeschool project, whatever, to develop these more fully. In the Exodus story, you have the slaughter of male children. You have the same thing in Matthew, obviously. There is the flight of Moses out of Egypt, right? He kills the Egyptian, and they see him, and he has to flee for his life. And there's the flight of Joseph, Mary, and Yeshua out of the land because they also are fearing for the life of Yeshua. Israel is delivered at night, and Joseph, Mary, and Yeshua flee to Egypt at night. The same. The exodus happens at nighttime. Yeshua, uh, J- Joseph and Mary and Yeshua leave at nighttime. Moses returns after the death of Pharaoh, and Joseph, Mary, and Yeshua return after the death of Herod. And we have an almost exact verbal parallel in uh, Matthew 2.20 to Exodus 4.19. For those who have sought your life have died. For those who have sought the child's life are dead. So you have... Uh, the, he's making obvious parallels. Why? As the paradigm for redemption, the Exodus is here brought forward by way of type and anti-type. The anti-type of Pharaoh is, of course, Herod, while Moses stands as a type of Messiah. Even as Moses mediated the covenant for Israel and led her out of her bondage, so Yeshua would be the mediator for his people and redeem them from the slavery of sin. It's almost as though Matthew wants us to think back now. We have studied the Torah. We know the Torah. Now he says, 
think about all that you know about the Torah and see how it's being fulfilled in Yeshua. That's, I mean, he wants us to play that, that story over and over again. Uh, you know, n- not fulfilled in the sense of done away with. But why do we do these things? You know, why is there the tabernacle? Why is there the temple? Why are there the sacrifices? Why do we keep the Moedim? What are all these things pointing to? And for Matthew, as well as the other gospel writers, they want us to see that it is pointing to Yeshua. And it is that in his work, these things find their culmination and find their their realization in terms of what God wants for his people. It's not as though Matthew has contrived his story in order to conform it to the pattern of Exodus. The sources upon which he drew related the history of Yeshua's birth in early years, including the events that parallel the Exodus. Matthew is simply telling his story in such a way as to highlight these parables. I'm not saying, you understand, it's my caution here. I mean, some would say, oh, this is all mythology. <laughs> you know, Matthew just made up a story that fit Exodus so that it would look the same. No, no, that's not it at all. They were the same. Why were they the same? Well, that's because God ordained it that way. You know, he's the writer of the story. He knows the end from the beginning, so he can do these kinds of things. He can prepare the Exodus in such a way, and he can bring about the birth of the Messiah in such a way that the two are parallel, and he wants us to see that. In in some ways, then, when we're when we're studying, you know, we don't we have to be careful that we don't uh, read. Now I have to be careful with my words. Uh, that we don't read the Bible just exactly like Luther did. Luther basically said, if you don't find Jesus there, it's not it's worth nothing. Well, that's not exactly true. I mean, there is a there is a progressive revelation. Do you understand what I mean by that? I, I like to use the illustration of a tree. When you plant a seed in the ground, say of an oak tree, everything necessary for that tree is there. But it doesn't look like an oak tree. And when it first comes up, it truly is an oak tree. And all that is necessary for it to become the oak tree is in that shoot and in in, in that root. And so as it continues to grow and progress and progress, we learn more and more about what an oak tree looks like and what it, you know, what it can withstand and, and so forth and so on, what its leaves are and, and all of that. It isn't that the, that the fullness of the oak tree negates the in, initial seed. It is that it is the fulfilling of that initial seed. And so in the same way, we don't know... Uh, about Yeshua as as much in Genesis as we do in John. By the time John comes, the tree has grown. We have seen, we, we understand more about what God means with regard to redemption and salvation and, and you know, uh, Messiah and Savior and all of these kinds of things. We have a much better idea of what he means by the time uh, Yeshua actually comes on the scene. So that's what I mean by progressive revelation. We should try to study the, the Tanakh on its own terms. We should try to put ourselves in the time and the place and the culture of the people to whom it was written. But it is nonetheless like a flashlight that is shining forward to an event. And once now we have seen that event, we can look back and say, oh, now I see how all of these things lined up I, even better than I did before. Verse 13. 
page 61. Now, when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Here, once again, we have divine uh, communication through a dream. Matthew's use of behold signals a significant event in the unfolding of the story. He also cast the word appeared in the so-called historical present. Now, some of you may have in your Bibles, I know in, in some New American Standard Bibles, they put a little asterisk by it. Any of you have that? Okay, you know what that means? It means that the translators have put the verb in the past tense, but in the original it is in the present tense. So if, if we wanted to read it exactly the way the Greek has it, now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appears. Why would they do that? Well, the Greek writers would do that in order to try to make it more vivid. And that's what, what is happening here. Along with the word behold, he wants us to actually step back into this scene and say, behold, look, there's an angel appearing to Joseph. The divine providence expressed in the dream given to the Magi is now at work in leading Joseph and his family away from the coming disaster. Like Abraham, who was called to go from his family to wait upon God for further revelation, so Joseph was to go to Egypt and remain there until God instructs him to return. The path of obedience is also one of faith. In other words, when God asks us to obey, he doesn't always tell us everything. He says, go and stay there until I tell you. Now, you have to be a person of faith to do that. Say, but wait a minute. What if I go and you forget about me? How long am I supposed to wait, God? And, and by the way, where am I supposed to go? Egypt's not just a city. And how am I to make a living? And how am I going to make my way here? But it doesn't appear as though Joseph asked those questions. Just as when God instructed Abraham to leave his family and his kindred and go. And God would show him the way. So the same was true with Joseph. And the same is true with us. He went right away. He didn't, he didn't wait. He didn't, you know. And uh, we have this regularly in the Tanakh. When God tells uh, uh, someone to do something and they're obedient, it often says, and he rose early in the morning. Well, it's probably because he couldn't sleep. But, no, I'm just kidding. But the, the, the idea is that there is, there is a intent on obedience that nothing can get in the way. Let's do it and do it now. And that's, that always blesses the heart of any parent, right? I mean, if you, tell your, if you tell your children, you know, I want you to do this, and they drop what they're doing, and they just go and do what you told them, you, you're just amazed. I mean, you, you know, you're, you're, ready to, you're ready to pat them on the back and, and give them an iPod or something. I'm just kidding. All right. The, the, the future of Joseph's family, and particularly of the child, is dependent upon God's faithfulness to reveal his will. In the Torah, descent to Egypt or connection to Egypt spells trouble. Abraham descends to Egypt because of famine and puts Sarah in jeopardy. Hagar is an Egyptian. Isaac is commanded not to descend to Egypt. The Midianite traders to whom Joseph was sold were on their way to Egypt. Joseph is enslaved in Egypt prior to his rise to power. Ultimately, the nation of Israel is enslaved in Egypt as well. Thus, Egypt became a symbol of trouble and slavery. In Matthew's story, however, Egypt is a place of protection away from the murderous decree of Herod. 
This may parallel the life of David in which he too retreated to the land of Israel's enemies to escape those seeking his life. In 1 Samuel 21.10, David flees from Saul to the land of Achish, king of Goth, and feigning insanity takes refuge there. In a similar fashion, the son of David is taken to a foreign land in order to escape his enemies. So I'm wondering if, if Matthew is continuing to give these subtle parallels between Yeshua and David. The rabbinic sources are aware of the flight to Egypt, but most likely they have taken this from the gospel sources. We therefore gain little historical value in their mention of the event. What I mean is the rabbinic sources are not talking about Yeshua's flight to Egypt independently of what they apparently had learned by reading the gospels. So they're just repeating or adding to. Uh, we therefore gain little historical value. The purpose for including Yeshua's flight to Egypt, however, seems clear. Wanting to portray him as a magician whose powers were not from God and who led Israel astray, some notices in the rabbinic literature describe Yeshua's magical arts as having been learned in Egypt. For instance, in the Babylonian Talmud Sanhedrin 107b, the accusation against Yeshua is linked to the fact that his father, called Joshua ben Pariah, had taken him to Egypt. But Joshua ben Pariah lived nearly two generations before the time of Yeshua, showing that this notice, like the others, were put forward as a polemic against Yeshua and his followers. In the in the controversy that uh, is recorded between Origen and a Jewish uh, person by the name of uh, Selsum or Celsium, Celsium brings this up. Are you aware of these kinds of debates, these early debates amongst the church fathers? And they would write them up. They would have these debates with these, whether they were actual Jewish people or whether they were fictitious. But they would have these debates in which they would always show the Jewish person to be a total idiot and Christianity to be obviously what is right and uh, one of the in, in this in this well-known debate uh, this Jewish person Selsum brings up the idea that well the reason that that Yeshua was able to do these quote-unquote miracles was that he did it by the magical powers of, uh, of darkness which he learned while he was in Egypt. But Matthew is clear in relating the facts of his sources. Joseph took Mary and Yeshua to Egypt on the basis of divine instructions and remained there until God instructed him to return to the land. The flight of Egypt is entirely the plan of God. Okay, verse 14. Any questions on uh, any additions? Don't be uh, bashful to raise your hand and share your thoughts. I'll repeat it on the tape. Yeah. Well, actually, the, uh, okay, okay, the comment was the comment was made that the uh, the magicians in Egypt apparently had uh, didn't have power. At least they couldn't match the miracles of Moses. Is your point? They couldn't solve the plague. So, yeah. But apparently, they did have some powers because uh, they were able to do the snake trick. From everything that we read in documents like the Book of the Dead and other kinds of things, it seems like they were. At least they were, if, they, if nothing else, they were good sleight of hand and good smoke and mirror people. But I wouldn't be surprised at all that they had uh, given in to the powers of, of demonic powers and that the demonic powers do have power. They have the power to, I think they have the power to make someone uh, appear as dead and then take that away so that they back, come back to life. I'm basing it on simply that, especially in the ancient world, that there was there were not uh, there there were not the scientific measures we have now for knowing for sure if a person was dead. And so, you know, the reports of people being buried alive are 
you know, there are reports in the ancient world of people being entombed when they, and then, and in fact, this was a theory, was it not, of the resurrection of Yeshua, that he, that he was put in the tomb, and then the coolness of the tomb, you know, he revived and whatever. So, you know, that, that, that apparently did happen, and it was possible. It, it, it wouldn't surprise me, because I have, you know, uh, if, if, if a demon can uh, mimic an epileptic fit, for instance, I don't see any reason why a demon couldn't cause uh, a person to fall asleep and be uh, unreactive to stimuli. It seems to me that that that, that, that would... Yeah, fake it. Right, right. All right. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. His obedience is precise and immediate. He does not wait. But believing the revelation he has received and knowing that Herod is intent on harming Yeshua, he leaves at night. Like the Israelites of old who left Egypt at night, so Jacob and his family flee from Herod at night. But even more important is the notice, once again, that Joseph was entirely obedient to the divine word he had received. The earlier notice that Joseph was a righteous man is confirmed in the story time and again. Egypt fit the circumstances well. It was close and well-established Roman province outside of Herod's jurisdiction. Moreover, it had a large Jewish population. According to Philo, a million Jews lived in Egypt. Now, whether you can, whether you can believe Philo or whether he's given to exaggeration, you know, I, I can't say. So... He, that is Joseph, remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. The death of Herod brought relief to many. Carson notes that following the death of Herod, the Qumran Covenanters returned to rebuild their center, which had been destroyed in 31 BCE. The death of Herod also made it possible for Joseph and his family to return safely to the land. The return to the land is said by Matthew to fulfill a prophecy of the Tanakh introduced by the common formula. Uh, this formula, this was to fulfill what had been spoken um, by the Lord through the prophet and then given the prophecy. So that's a common formula. This was done in order that this should be fulfilled and then the words of the prophet. The quote is from Hosea 11.1, 1, but the manner in which Yeshua's return to the land was its fulfillment requires further discussion. <laughs> and you can see that it's, uh, it's not exactly from the Septuagint, but it's, uh, it's close. Uh, the Septuagint has, uh, uh, out of Egypt I have called his children, out of Egypt I have called my son, is exactly what the Hebrew says. So here, once again, Matthew seems to be looking at the Hebrew text rather than the Septuagint text, which is interesting because it's apparent in other quotes that he did have the Septuagint text. He may have had both, and he may have known both. Uh, he quotes the one that he, that works for him, or is, or he quotes more closely the Hebrew. And uh, I mentioned that uh, in the paragraph below. The phrase in the context of Hosea 11 is clearly a reference to the Exodus. As the prophet bemoans the waywardness of Israel in regard to her marriage covenant with God, which she has despised, he reminds her that God had loved her and had proven his love through redeeming her from the slavery of Egypt. Her exodus was not the result of her own strength, but was entirely the work of the Almighty who stretched forth his hand to redeem her. It is this demonstration of his redeeming love that is the point of the prophet in his bringing the judgment against Israel for her faithlessness. By the way, don't be concerned when metaphors are mixed. Israel is, concern, is considered to be God's bride, but it's no problem for him to say Israel is my firstborn son. Or, out of Egypt I have called my son. By the way, son can simply mean child in the Hebrew. So, it, it's broader than, than what we may uh, think. This idea of God redeeming the outstretched arm 
Nothing's difficult for God. But when he reveals things to us, he does so in terms we understand. The outstretched arm from the Hebrew idiom meant something that that was that took effort. Some, you know, it wasn't sitting on your couch uh, pushing the remote. The outstretched arm meant that you were working, that you were, you know, giving energy. So when he says that he redeems Israel with outstretched arm, it means that it was that it was more. If, if we can say it this way, understand the metaphor, it was more work for God to redeem Israel than it was to create the universe. In the universe, he just spoke. The redemption of Israel required his outstretched arm. And, and that's what he wants us to see. Redemption is a bigger, is even a bigger work of God than creation itself. Thus, the quote in Matthew's story is given to parallel the Exodus event as the demonstration of God's covenant faithfulness to Israel, which resulted in her redemption with the coming of Yeshua as his Messiah who would effect eternal redemption. In that Yeshua represents Israel, he does so as her Redeemer, as the one through whom she receives her promised reward. How is it that the flight to Egypt by Joseph and Mary, taking Yeshua out of harm's way, could be the fulfillment of Hosea's prophecy, when in the original context of the prophetic oracle, the reverence is obviously to the historical event of the Exodus. This teaching is one of the 218 audio sessions found in the five-volume teaching series titled A Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew by Tim Haig from Tor Resource. This product is the fruit of over three years of studying and teaching through the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse, and from a messianic perspective. The five-volume set is available in softcover book, or digitally as PDF files. To order your copy today, visit torresource.com. First, it is clear that Matthew understood Hosea's original meaning and its and its connection to the Exodus events. It is not that he is naively unaware that out of Egypt I have called my son referred to historical Israel in Hosea's prophecy. In other words, he's not stupid. You know, it, it, you know, and it kind of gripes me when some of these commentators say, you know, certainly Matthew was unaware of Hosea's context. Yeah, well, if Matthew was unaware of it, how come we're aware of it? I mean, you know, it's, it's similar to the same controversy that's going on about the book of Hebrews. You know, the idea that the, that the writer to the, to the Hebrews could just had no access to the book of Leviticus. And he could not have known that, hey, that the altar of incense was not in the most holy place. And, you know, the, the, the covenant with, uh, with Moses and with Abraham and so forth was not a last will and testament. This guy's all mixed up. Well, how could he be so all mixed up when he was a whole lot closer to it all than we are? How can we be so smart and he's so dumb? So it, it isn't that it isn't that these authors don't see. They see very clearly. In fact, they probably see more clearly than we give them credit for. The reality is, is that we don't have their understanding, and we don't we, we have not yet tapped into their mindset. So, if the original context and meaning of Hosea's words are apparent to us, they were likewise apparent to Matthew. Secondly, the common explanation given by many Christian commentators that Matthew is here teaching a new Israel with a new exodus that replaces the old Israel and reinterprets the historical exodus is wrong-headed. In other words, many commentators say, okay, out of Israel I've called my son. Now, everybody knows that Hosea was talking about Israel in the land of Egypt when God brought her out. Now, however... Matthew applies this to Yeshua. What is he saying? Forget the old Israel. Forget the old Exodus. There's a new Israel. Yeshua is the new Israel. 
and the new exodus is to be found in him, and it supersedes and eclipses everything else, and that's what Matthew's trying to teach us. Wrong-headed is all I'll say. Though the notion that Matthew's message is supersessionistic, supersessionism, by the way, is the theological term meaning that the church supersedes Israel. It has been often repeated throughout Christian interpretation. It does not stand in the face of Matthew's message. Why would he clearly relate Yeshua's instructions to his disciples that they were not to go to the Gentiles but only to the lost sheep of Israel if his intention was to show that the new community of Yeshua's followers had replaced unbelieving Israel? Moreover, the consistent sub-theme of Matthew's gospel that relates to the manner in which Gentiles receive Yeshua carries the message that Gentiles are brought into Israel, not that they replace her. The commission to make disciples of the nations, that con- or we could say Gentiles if you'd want, that concludes Matthew's gospel, incorporates the ritual of the mikvah, or the ritual immersion, which the Christian church knows as baptism, would certainly have been connected to the proselyte ritual by Matthew's audience, something that portrayed Gentiles joining Israel, not replacing her. In, in, in Matthew's day, if a Gentile wanted to be received as a Jew and given status as a Jew, they went through a ritual of proselytizing. For males, that required circumcision. It required going to the temple and giving a sacrifice. It required a commitment to the whole Torah. And it required, and the last thing that happened was, they went through a ritual immersion. Now, if you were a, if you were a woman, you got off a little easier. You just had the sacrifice, the commitment to Torah, and the ritual immersion. In either case, the final event in the ritual of becoming a proselyte was a going down into the water and coming out. And the Mishnah says, when the proselyte comes out of the out of the water, he, it says he, but it could say just as well she, is an Israelite in every way. That is the final event that moves you from being a Gentile to a Jew as far as the rabbis were concerned. Now, the, the fact that Yeshua says to his disciples, go, and when you make disciples of all the nations, what? Giving them a mikvah. He doesn't explain a mikvah. Why? He didn't need to. Everybody already knew what that was. It meant moving from one status to another status. And so as the, as the Gentile believers went through the waters of the mikvah, they were saying, I am leaving my life of paganism and I am coming into and joining Israel as those who worship the one true God. Now, in, in doing that, they were confessing Yeshua to be God's Messiah as the means by which they would worship him. So we must seek other explanations for Matthew's fulfillment interpretation of Hosea's prophecy. Some have suggested that Matthew's use of Hosea 11.1 is based upon Gezerah Shavah, which literally means an equal or identic category. It's a rabbinic hermeneutic whereby texts that contain similar verbal components are linked together as speaking of the same subject. This is very common in the rabbinic literature. So if you have two texts of Scripture that share common verbal components, the same words or the same phrases, you can link those together and say the one helps interpret the other. If this is the case, we must seek to find the verbal links that led Matthew to utilize Hosea's prophecy as he did. We may first note Numbers 24.8 of the Balaam oracles and the phrase, God brings him out of Egypt. Let's look at that. Let's turn to Numbers 24. If you go to verse 4 of that chapter, not Numbers 24.4, 
We read, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down, yet having his eyes uncovered. How fair are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel. Like valleys that stretch out, like gardens beside the river, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. Water will flow from his buckets, and his seed will be by many waters, and his king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt. He is for him like the horns of the wild oxen so forth. So we have that phrase, God brings him out of Egypt. In the previous verse, in verse 7, where the M, for the Masoretic text has water will flow from his buckets, the Septuagint translates, a man will come forth from his seed. The Peshitta, the Syriac version has, a mighty man shall proceed from his sons, and Targum Onkelos interprets the phrase as, a king shall grow great who shall be reared from his sons. Thus, it is understandable how these verses would have been interpreted messianically by those like Matthew who were familiar with the Septuagint and Targumim. Interestingly, in the margin of Codex Sinaiticus, which is one of the main uh, manuscripts that has the uh, Septuagint as well as the Greek apostolic scriptures, at Matthew 2.15, our text, a scribe has written in the margin that the quote is from Numbers 24.8, indicating the early connection between the two texts. The verbal linkage to Hosea 11.1 from Matthew then would have been the word Egypt, strengthened by the Targumic use of sons. This son shall come forth, a son shall, a man or shall come forth. Linking the two texts together allow Matthew to link the Messianic interpretation of Numbers 24.7.8 to Hosea 11.1. So you understand what I'm saying? Here's a text that talked about coming out of Egypt, talked about a son coming from the, the seed who will be brought out of Egypt. Now, granted, in the context, this is still talking about Israel, but it, now it narrows it to the son, to, the, to a single son that represents Israel. I think Matthew would have thought, oh, I know what that's talking about. Moreover, the use of son, and particularly son of God and son of man, are applied to Yeshua by Matthew, carried a messianic flavor. It is notable that the divinic covenant as given in 2 Samuel 7 uses the term son in a covenant sense. And I've given it to you at the top of page 64. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Now, who's talking? God. So who is this king going to be? The son of... Right. I mean, that's what, that's what the Davidic covenant said. I will be fathered, him will be son to me. Somebody might say, well, wait a minute, Tim. That's just good covenant language. I grant it is good covenant language. It wasn't uncommon in the ancient Near East for a king to call his vassal his son. That, that was not, not a problem. But again, from, in Matthew's ear, when he hears son of God, when he hears son Coming out of Egypt, there's a perfect linkage there. The fact that the Davidic covenant included father-son language is foundational for the son of God and son of man terminology that was understood messianic, messianically in the first century. And I've given you a couple of references to Qumran, as well as for Matthew's use of the titles. Indeed, son of God terminology is repeatedly used in Matthew's gospel, and I've given you the references. The final reference being the affirming words of the centurion, truly, this was the son of God. Furthermore, the idea that a messianic figure would represent the whole of Israel as the quintessential Israelite is seen in Isaiah, where the servant of Adonai is used both of the nation as a whole, and I've given you references, as well as of the promised Redeemer and Messiah. Has this ever gotten you mixed up when you're reading Isaiah? When you read Isaiah, just because it says my servant doesn't mean it's talking about Messiah. Sometimes my servant is Israel. He said, who is, who is so blind as my servant? He's talking about Israel. But then later on, he talks about 
his servant who would redeem Israel. What's the point? This double use of the servant language furthered the idea that the promised redeemer would represent all of Israel and that his victory would be theirs. This idea of corporate solidarity within a redeemer is not something new for Israel. David himself represented Israel as he fought Goliath, the Philistine representative. And each year the high priest represented all of Israel as he entered the most holy place on Yom Kippur. In this sense, the, in this sense of corporate solidarity, the one represents the many and may thus be viewed as constituting the whole. Indeed, Israel is viewed as a single individual when God declares that Israel is my son, my firstborn, which parallels Hosea's words, out of Egypt, I have called my son. So let's tie these strands of thought together. From Numbers 24, 7 through 8, the idea was presented that Israel's deliverance from Egypt could be summed up in an individual, interpreted messianically. A man shall come forth from his seed. God brings him out of Egypt. From 2 Samuel 7, the idea that the Davidic king has a father-son relationship with God so that Israel as God's firstborn could be summed in the Davidic king who is also God's son. If Israel is God's firstborn son, and if David is his son, then David represents Israel. The Lord's servant in Isaiah strengthens the dual concept of the nation in corporate solidarity with the Messiah. So you have my servant who is all of the nation. You have my servant who is the Messiah representing all of the nation. So Hosea 11.1, out of Egypt I have called my son, could therefore apply both to Israel as the nation as well as to the representative of Israel, the Davidic king, the Messiah. Given these lines of connectivity, Matthew's use of Hosea 11.1 gathers together the strands of messianic expectation with the redemption of Israel. He applies the prophecy of Hosea 11.1, out of Egypt I have called my son to Yeshua, because like the exodus from Egypt, which formed the paradigm for redemption itself, it is in Yeshua that Israel's ultimate and final redemption would be realized. Even as Yeshua would be taken to Egypt by Joseph and Mary and would return to the land at the appointed time, so Israel as a nation, God's firstborn son, would find her redemption from slavery in the person and work of God's son, the Davidic king, Messiah. Far from wresting Hosea's prophecy from its context or misusing it for his own theological purposes, Matthew has brought it forward within the overall messianic promise of the Tanakh, appropriately applying it to Yeshua. Now, I know that, that that's a little, uh, you know, you have to, you have to work to, uh, to see that coming about, but I commend that to your thinking. Buzz, the, the question is, prior to, to Rashi, were they looked at, messian, were these texts look at, looked at messianically? Yes. The Targum considers these very much messianically. And 4Q Flor Legium gathers many of these, of these same verses together. Actually, as a study of this messianic idea. Rashi was given the job of trying to overcome the wave of Christianity that was um, causing a whole lot of uh, difficulty amongst the Jewish people. And, uh, you know, let's face it, the argument from Isaiah 53 is a pretty strong argument. And he was, uh, he was pretty crafty to come up with, with his uh, view that it related to Israel and not to the Messiah. And, and even to make that stick. You know, uh, so, I mean, he was, he, was, he was a brilliant man. In some cases, brilliantly wrong. All right, verse 16. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, 
he became very enraged and sentenced through all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. The word of the angel given to Joseph has come true. Herod, realizing that the Magi had failed to cooperate with his plan, and by the way, the word can mean to mock or to dupe or to deceive. It's the same word that is used when they uh, later on about Yeshua when they mock him, became enraged like Pharaoh in the Exodus story exactly the opposite of the joy expressed by the Magi, and initiates his plan to massacre all male children in the environs of Bethlehem in hopes of destroying Israel's infant king. The exact time frame is not given, but we should reason that sufficient time had elapsed for Herod to realize that the Magi had refused to further his murderous plot. Herod's later years were marked by massacres of innocent people. Not only is he remembered for murdering his own wife, but he also slew his two sons, Alexander and Aristobulus, and thereafter his son Antipater. He further ordered that upon his death, a member of every prominent Jewish family under his rule should be executed in order that there would be sufficient mourning for his passing. Now, whether, whether Josephus gives us, you know, you can read this in, in Antiquities uh, 17, um, he, when, when he realized that his death was near, he uh, ordered that prominent men from every family in Judea be gathered together, and they put them in the Hippodrome, which was just south of the uh, temple and uh, basically corralled them into the Hippodrome, and uh, they were there until he died, and, uh, which was fairly imminent. And, uh, at, and according to Josephus, um, they were all slaughtered in the Hippodrome. And uh, because Herod said he knew that he was hated so much that no one would mourn his death. And so he wanted some mourning to go on. Well, after he died, this was, he was a madman. He was a, he was an absolute madman. The author of the Testament of Moses likewise prophesies of powerful kings who would rise arise over Israel, usurping the office of high priest, and who would quote exterminate them in secret places, so that no one will know where their bodies are. He will kill both young and old, showing mercy to none. He will impose judgments upon them, as did the Egyptians, and he will punish them. So this would be a, a, a source of Jewish writings uh, that come from approximately the same time. So the connection of Herod's reign with the oppression of the Pharaoh of the Exodus is something already in place by Matthew's time. For Herod, like Pharaoh, only the male children are murdered. He gives no room for a female king. How many male children were massacred is not known, but given the fact that the population of Bethlehem and its environs was most likely around 1,000, and given the birth and mortality rates of the time, it is likely that the number would be in the neighborhood of 20. Did you think it was a lot more than that? Usually we do. And that's because the tradition in the Christian church exaggerated the number to 14,000 in one source and 64,000 in another. And in even a very later source, they said that the 144,000 in Revelation related to the infants killed at Yeshua's death. But it was probably 20. But nonetheless, if you're in a small village where everybody knows each other and 20 young boys two years or younger are put to death, that would be... That, that would be a huge, huge tragedy. As noted above, Herod expanded his execution order both geographically and chronologically. It says, in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and younger. Given the age of the victims, it is reasonable to presume that the birth of Yeshua, calculated by the original time the star appeared to the Magi, had most likely occurred at least a year and a half earlier. All right. Uh, we're on page 66, verses 17 and 18. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. 
a voice was heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. The appeal to Jeremiah 31.15 once again requires explanation for Matthew's use of the Tanakh in his narrative. Clearly, Matthew has made a connection between the death of children spoken of by Jeremiah and the situation in Bethlehem at the time of Yeshua's infancy. If we look more closely at Jeremiah 31, we will see some remarkable parallels to Matthew's story. Moreover, it is clear that Jeremiah 31 was understood eschatologically. That means referring to the end of times as speaking of the time of Yeshua. For the New Covenant passage in verses 31 through 34 was regularly interpreted as being accomplished by the work of Yeshua. If we look at the context of Jeremiah 31, I've noted some similarities, just language-wise. Verses 4 and 21 refer to Israel as, O virgin of Israel. And, of course, we know about a virgin in Matthew's story. Verse 9 of Jeremiah 31, I am Israel's father, and Ephraim is my firstborn son. And we're talking about infants. You have revealed to them infants in Matthew 11:25. Verse 8 of Jeremiah 31, See, I will bring them. Among them will be expectant mothers. And, of course, in the opening chapter of Matthew, we have Mary, who is, who is with child. Verse 7 of Jeremiah 31, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. And what does Yeshua say? Or what does uh, Matthew say? You shall call his name Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. Jeremiah prophesies, your children will return to their own land. And we know that Joseph and Mary and the child got up and came into the land of Israel. Uh, Verse 35 of Jeremiah 31, he appoints the stars to shine by night. And we have the the whole idea of the star that uh, in chapters uh, in chapter two, in verse 25 of Jeremiah 31, those who hunger and thirst will be fulfilled or be filled. And this is directly quoted in Matthew's uh, account of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter five. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And finally, the third. Verses 31 to 34 show a new covenant to be established with Israel. And in Matthew, of course, we have Yeshua saying, for this is my blood of the covenant. Now, what is my point here? Matthew has Jeremiah 31 in mind. So it's obvious that Jeremiah was in the mind of Matthew as he was uh, writing. Uh, These parallels to uh, his own uh, gospel show us that that he had he had read Jeremiah and particularly Jeremiah 31 but even more so uh, having seen and understood the events surrounding the birth and the infancy of Yeshua in rereading Jeremiah 31 Matthew had to see many of the links so it's uh, it's understandable why when he read uh, Jeremiah 31:15, and and saw the slaughter uh, of the infants in Bethlehem, that the two would be connected. So it's on this basis that he brings this forward. But the question remains: How is it then that he saw the fulfillment of uh, Jeremiah 31:15? A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning and so forth. How did he see that as fulfilled in the events? surrounding Yeshua's birth. If we continue at the bottom of page 66, even if the completion of Jeremiah's prophecy remained for the yet eschatological future, in Matthew's mind, the appearance of the Messiah sealed the prophecy as inevitably fulfilled by him. Furthermore, since some of what Jeremiah foresaw 
had already taken place in a representative way in Yeshua, as we discussed above uh, with the quote from Hosea 11.1, then Matthew could reason that the rest of Jeremiah's prophetic message would also be accomplished by him. If we look at the quote itself, we can see that Matthew clearly has the Hebrew text in mind. It's not uh, the Septuagint text is not different in uh, in general than the Hebrew text, but it is somewhat somewhat different, and it's it seems clear that Matthew once again is quoting from the Hebrew text. But exactly how is it that uh, he sees this fulfillment? If we look at the historical background of Jeremiah 31, we see that it's the deportation of Israel, of the Israelites to Babylon. Now, uh, there's some question about whether Jeremiah has the the, deporta- the earlier deportation of the northern tribes or the pending uh, deportation of the southern tribes. It probably is the deportation of Judah and Benjamin, which is coming now under the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, by the, specifically by the hand of his commander, the commander of the Imperial Guard, Nebuzaradan. And historically, we know that he gathered the captives at Ramah before taking them to Babylon. So Ramah was the staging area, so to speak, where he gathered the captives together before they set off uh, in the exile to Babylon. Rachel's tomb lay north of Jerusalem at Zilzal in the same vicinity, according to 1 Samuel 10.2. And the text in Genesis tells us, For Jacob buried her on the way to Ephrath, and Ephrath is is uh, seen to be, that is, near uh, Beth- Bethlehem. So, Jeremiah's prophecy in chapter 31 of Jeremiah envisions the captives of Judah going past Rachel's tomb and her crying out from her tomb as her children are taken away. Now, obviously, Rachel was idealized as the mother of Israel, even though uh, more of Jacob's sons were born by Leah. So when Jeremiah says Rachel crying out, uh, weeping for her children, he's he's looking at the 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 mother of Israel, so to speak, and uh, the mother of Judah, <clears throat> uh, Benjamin, the southern tribes, at least in an ideal fashion, crying out because her children are being taken into exile. Now, the question is, how does this fit Matthew's story? The weeping in Bethlehem is not for the one who is being exiled to Egypt, but to those who remain and were slaughtered. The answer may be found in the context of the Jeremiah quote itself. Jeremiah 31 is a chapter of hope, for even though there are tears in connection with the exile, there is hope because the Almighty intends and promises to reverse the exile and regather his people, renewing them in their obedience to him, forgiving and wiping away their transgressions, and establishing them forever as his people in the land. It's this context of hope that allows Matthew to utilize Jeremiah 31.15 because the same context of hope had now dawned at the time uh, of Matthew in the birth of Yeshua. In the same way then, the anguish at the needless slaughter of children in Bethlehem at the uh, time of Yeshua will give way to hope for the coming redemption, for the Redeemer has come. The very cause of the slaughter of, of these children was in fact the, the uh, attempt of Herod to find this child king. 
And so it would appear that his coming brought despair. But Matthew is turning that and saying, no, in the same way that Jeremiah 31 is a context of hope in view of the exile. Even though Judah and Benjamin were being now taken by their enemies and exiled into the land of their enemies, yet God had given a promise that he would bring them back, that he would write the Torah upon their heart, and that uh, he would uh, plant them in the land and he would, forever, he would forever bring them to himself and never again to be taken away. So even in light of the exile in Jeremiah 31, there is this picture of hope. The same motif then is used by Matthew. Even in view of this terrible slaughter of the children in Bethlehem at the hand of Herod and his henchmen, there is still great hope, and the hope is that this one who has been born, this child king, will indeed reign, and he will bring uh, redemption for his people. So, in the same way, the anguish at the needless slaughter of children will give way to hope for the coming redemption, for the Redeemer has come. Furthermore, Matthew has already noted that the exile has ended. Remember in the genealogies that he maps the genealogies of chapter 1 into three groups of 14, and he uses the exile and the end of the exile as boundaries for those three groups of 14. So he mentions that. He also mentions that the Davidic king has arrived. The one who would establish the new covenant has come, and the tears will be wiped away, gathering the hopeful tone of Jeremiah, writing in the face of the exile. Matthew brings this hope to rest squarely upon Yeshua, Emmanuel. So can, can you see how the how the Jeremiah 31:15 passage can be brought into Matthew's story? In the same way that there was crying and weeping at the time of the exile, as Jeremiah describes it and prophesies it in uh, Jeremiah 31. So the crying and weeping at the uh, time of Yeshua's birth and his infancy will give way to the hope that he brings as Israel's Messiah, as Israel's king, as the one who will be the Redeemer. As Carson concludes, the tears of the exile are now being fulfilled. And that's the point. That's how Matthew can bring the fulfillment into his context when he writes, then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. The tears began in Jeremiah's day are climaxed and ended by the tears of the mothers of Bethlehem. The heir of David's throne has come, the exile is over, and the true Son of God has arrived, and he will introduce the new covenant promised by Jeremiah. Jeremiah. So for for Matthew, having seen all of these parallels in Jeremiah 31 to the events uh, that surrounded the birth and infancy of Yeshua, for Matthew, he sees the two connected. How is it that Israel will be regathered? How is it that the new covenant would come to fruition, that the Torah would be written on the hearts of not just the remnant, but of the whole nation? How will this happen? Now Matthew knows. He, he sees that the coming of Yeshua and his work will in fact be the means, the accomplishment of Jeremiah's prophecy of hope. And so in the same way that there was uh, weeping and crying at the exile in his day, and there is weeping and crying in the day of Matthew at the, uh, at the slaughter of these innocent baby boys, so there is hope 
because the one who has come will in fact fulfill the prophet's promises of the Messiah who brings victory for Israel. Okay, I hope that uh, gives some uh, help in understanding uh, Matthew's use of of Jeremiah 31.15. And we're going to stop there for tonight, and we'll pick up uh, at this point next week. You've been listening to the Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. If you like this teaching and want to hear more, please visit us at TorahResource.com. Join us again next week as Tim takes us through another verse-by-verse lesson in the Gospel of Matthew. 